0: In the category good of rare, news? rare good news. You bring
1: good news? I bring the rare Evan, bit of good news. this never happens. Well, okay. it's,
0: I was just going to say, has anybody ever seen anybody look as happy in politics as Joe Biden in Ireland at the uh, moment? <laughs> 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 he looks like he just is like a golden retriever with his head out the window. He's happy everywhere <laughs> he goes.
1: And he's taking selfies and everything, right? In exactly. front of everything. Yeah, he's um, found his people and they have found him.
0: Exactly.
1: Well, he did get in big trouble, though. He screwed up.
2: Did you you see the latest Biden gaffe? He was trying to talk about his cousin, who's a rugby player for the national New Zealand team. But instead of referencing that team— called the all blacks he referenced the black and tans <laughs> the notorious british military group that fought the ira a century ago and of course in sports mad uk this has been like huge huge tabloid fodder <laughs> yeah uh, but lots of, uh, details
0: details susan
2: Welcome to The Political Scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Jane Mayer. So, it's been almost a year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Now we're once again in a high-stakes legal fight where abortion rights could be rolled back even further. As we stand right now, 13 states have banned most abortions, with 11 of those states not even carving out exceptions for rape or incest. But in recent weeks, the battle has moved to an abortion pill, mifepristone, which patients can get through the mail. Not surprisingly, use was skyrocketing in the wake of the Dobbs decision. But now, a federal judge in Texas has ruled that access must be curtailed. A competing judge on the West Coast has said it must be available. In other words, this is headed right for the Supreme Court. But as everyone knows, conservative justices at the court form an anti-abortion majority. So what will happen next? The stakes couldn't be higher, and American politics are already being reshaped by this new battle over abortion. So Jane, let's start with this ruling from Texas Judge Matthew Kazmarek just a week ago. How has he upended the law and the politics around this?
1: Well, if you had to pick a word to define the the ruling from Judge Matthew Case Marek, who is a federal district judge in Amarillo, Texas, I think that word would be radical. Basically, in every respect, this is an extreme decision that upsets the status quo in terms of women's access to uh, reproductive Rights And also in terms of just how the law works in this country. Um, it, it, he's been nominated by Ruth Marcus at the Washington Post, who's a, a very astute legal observer, as uh, the worst judge in America because of this ruling. Um, and even the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is also extremely conservative, has not upheld every aspect of his decision because it was so far out. They've uh, certainly have upheld enough of it for people to say that this is still a, a, a very extreme challenge to reproductive rights in this country. But basically, what did he do? He ruled that the FDA um, did not have the power and to regulate— and make public mifepristone, uh, a drug that is used in over half the abortions in America. The FDA's ruling goes back 20 years. There's 20 years of evidence that this drug is as safe as Tylenol or Viagra. But, um, nonetheless, this judge, who's not a doctor, um, invalidated the fda 's decision and said that the drug was a danger and should not be distributed or available to uh, consumers, even in states where abortion is legal in this country
2: well let 's talk about that because what 's interesting is that there's not just this one judge 's ruling, but now there 's a competing judge's ruling on the west coast and the Liberal Ninth Circuit has uh, jurisdiction over that. So, Evan, it's almost like we have two different Americas emerging here uh, uh, in the wake of the Dobbs decision. W- what does it mean that there's a competing ruling from a competing federal judge? If you were the FDA, what are you supposed to do? Do you just pick and choose which ruling to uh, follow?
0: I think there's a good reason for people out there to be – Feeling like this is complicated because it is evolving every 48 hours. I mean, you've had one ruling, then you had another. So you have the net effect at the moment is that the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has agreed to allow mefepristone to stay on the market but with restrictions that make it less available to millions of people unless the Supreme Court intervenes. So the current status is that it is in this very sort of tenuous legal limbo and everybody is now waiting for it ultimately. to go to the Supreme Court. But I think to your point, Susan, it's actually a live matter uh, of whether or not the FDA will, can, should, must adhere to the ruling that came out of Texas. So um, this is where we're starting to get the real rubber meets the road moment in terms of how much can courts challenge or undermine the work of regulatory agencies, which is actually a, a larger issue than even the abortion pill, as we'll talk about today.
2: Well, that's right. So Jane, what are the prospects at the Supreme Court? I mean, it seemed that in the Dobbs decision, the court very clearly was saying, well, we're going to throw the issue of abortion back to the state, which is why we have now this almost crazy patchwork quilt of different rules and regulations, depending uh, for women in America, where they live, what kind of uh, access they do or don't have to abortion. So what does it mean at the Supreme Court? And now we're just kicking it right back to them. That seems almost to contradict the spirit of the Dobbs decision.
1: Well, I mean, I think the thing you can say about the Dobbs decision is that it it ended um, Roe versus Wade, but it certainly didn't end the abortion debate in this country. And in fact, because both sides, but particularly the anti-abortion side, are going for not just half the cake, the whole cake. They want to completely ban abortions in this country. They believe abortion is murder, um, and they're not going to accept a patchwork any more than um, in the Civil War, that half the country was going to be allowed slaves and half the country was going to be free. And not surprisingly, we're actually seeing some of the same lineup of the states here. It's a it's sort of a dangerous f- sort of echo of the 1850s. You're seeing that the court is going to have to decide on, on national bans in this particular case. And there's also talk in Congress of trying to legislate national bans. So this has not ended the abortion debate by letting states decide things. And it never was going to. I mean, that was always, I think, a fig leaf, really. But at any rate, we're now seeing an even angrier and I would say more divisive phase. But
2: Jane, do you, it sounds like you're suggesting that you think the Supreme Court actually could uphold
1: this ban on uh, this abortion drug. Is that what you think is possible? I, you know, first of all, I'm not a lawyer and um, not a soothsayer, but I, I think that it's possible that this Supreme Court, this the the way this argument is shaped, is something that the Supreme Court is doubly um, sympathetic to. The conservative majority on the Supreme Court is an anti-abortion majority, and it is also a majority of conservatives who have. Um, great skepticism about the so-called regulatory state. They um, on any number of issues having to do with environmental pollution, uh, c- climate change, um, all kinds of regulations, they have um, sympathy for the argument that that government is too big and regulates too much. Um, and so, I mean for those reasons I think it's 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 likely that they will find some part of this that they're sympathetic to at the same time it's such a radical challenge to the status quo in this country I think it's hard for me to imagine that they'll they'll go for it whole hog
2: Well, radical is really, you know, the word, especially when you're talking about the implications beyond abortion and the idea that you could just challenge a federal agency's decision of 20 years. In some ways, it's interposing the judgment of this individual Federal judge uh, with that of uh, America's public health agencies and Evan, I, I was really struck by there was this letter from more than four hundred leaders in the pharmaceutical industry the other day condemning the decision from the Texas judge. I think uh, for exactly this reason. What do you? How broad are the implications?
0: Yeah, it was a fascinating indicator of the potential power of this because, as you can guess, you know, big. Fortune 500 pharma companies don't tend to speak up on questions of abortion because, as you can guess, they find it to be the kind of politics they're trying to avoid. But in this case, they spoke out very clearly. What they said was, and I'm going to read just a bit of it because I think it's really important, as they put it, a federal judge with no scientific training fundamentally undermined the bipartisan authority granted by Congress to the Food and Drug Administration. What that means uh, is that this could apply not only in the case of reproductive rights, um, which has tremendous impact immediately, but it could also be extended to things, as they put it, things like uh, vaccines or ultimately insulin or other things that right now we might consider to be settled matters. But if you ended up in the future, let's say, with Uh, a case that tried to challenge using COVID vaccines or, God forbid, another pandemic vaccine down the road, we can already anticipate there are going to be political fights around it. And if you have courts that are willing to essentially chuck out uh, the sound science around it, that's very dangerous. So it was notable that a couple of the signers of this letter were Pfizer and Biogen, which, after all, make the COVID vaccine.
1: I mean, we, in a way, have already seen this. I mean, the prelude to this were the fights over masking and... um it's part of really a 40-year fight that is the conservative movement's fight mm. against the regulatory state, as they call it. And um, there's some some very good work that's been done on this. Naomi Oreskes um, and Eric Conway have written uh, books on it, articles on it about the way that the anti-science movement I- in some ways has its roots in this sort of anti-government movement, yeah. all of which has been sort of nurtured on the far right in the country.
0: You could actually draw a line all the way back to the efforts to try to protect tobacco against science. And that was one of the big insights that they identified. Just the idea of sort of challenging the science on its basis. I wonder if we could, for a second, if I could just tap into sort of jane Opedia again here on on the history and the law. I think, Jane, there's a really key detail in the Texas courts ruling. There's a reference to the Comstock Act. I I think we're going to be hearing a lot about that. It's it's a law that goes back 150 years ago. What what's the significance of it? What what do you think the role is here?
1: Just unbelievable. The Comstock Act. I mean, that is uh, you know, when you study American history, it's like one of those Remarkable relics of the past, and you think, gosh, how could it's like primogenitor or something? You mm. know, it's it it was passed in an era when women could not even vote. It's an anti-vice law that was meant to stop the U.S. males from being used for for transmitting what was called you know smut during that time, anything pornography, but also anything that having to do with something that might have enabled a woman to have an abortion.
0: So anything that was – I mean, any sort of equipment or any uh, medication that could be sent through the mail is subject to this. Well, that's theory.
1: the argument of this judge in Texas. And, and he has invoked the Comstock Act, which nobody has thought was anything but in a sort of a dust heap, um, and and brushed it off. And I mean, and in a way, I think it's fascinating that this thing is coming to life because it signifies the extent to which the conservative movement – is moving backwards in time. You're going back to 1873 um, to sort of bring America backwards and basically repeal a century and a half worth of, of, of legal progress. The
2: political scene will be back in just a moment. Well, you know, it's interesting because this fight is in the courts right now, but it's also in the court of public opinion. And and because Dobbs so explicitly essentially invited this kind of fight, it's likely to be our new normal, it seems to me, where we're again and again and again fighting uh, uh, first in politics, then in state legislatures, And then in the federal courts. And, you know, that's exactly what we've seen happen over the last few weeks, right, guys? I mean, we've had these, on the one hand, these court rulings and competing visions. Of uh, what kind of uh, reproductive rights should be available through the mail. But at the same time, we've had an incredible ferment in, in the political world. And again, and again, what we're seeing is that voters are saying no to this across the country, even in red states, even in conservative states. We just had this very interesting election in the battleground state of Wisconsin uh, with uh, a state Supreme Court justice uh, who made abortion rights the centerpiece of their campaign. Evan, what does that tell you about, you know, how how far out on a limb are uh, the anti-abortion judges when it comes to what Americans think they want in this country?
0: Well, it's quite clear when you look at any data on american attitudes that it's quite simple i mean americans after the dobbs decision and before were in the same place which is that a majority of americans believe that there should be access to abortion that's just a fact and and since then you've seen uh, additional polling that has really emphasized how far out of step a lot of these decisions and a lot of these political positions are i mean just take as an illustration the behavior this week of tim scott who's the latest uh, entrance into the the run for president game. And you saw him in total agony trying not to answer the question of where he is on abortion. Would
1: you support a federal ban on abortions? I would simply say that um, the fact of the matter is when you look at the issue of abortion, one of the challenges that we have, we continue to go to the most restrictive conversations without broadening the scope and taking a look at the fact that I'm 100 percent pro-life. Uh, I never walk away from that. But the truth of the matter is that when you look at the issues on abortion, I start with the very important conversation I had in a banking hearing when I was sitting in my office and listening to... Jim
0: he knows the that the Secretary politics the on this are very bad for Republicans. They are wildly out of step with where the country is. Uh, and yet at this stage in the game, and I think we'll talk about this more, there are reasons why he is beholden to some of the people who are the gatekeepers ultimately to access to true power in Republican politics.
2: Well, we talked about public opinion. I believe that uh, the most recent Pew numbers, and they're they're borne out by other national polls, suggest it's really not even a close call, right? Something like two-thirds of Americans have support right now, abortion rights. And in fact, I believe that number's gone up, not down, in the wake of the Dobbs ruling throwing out Roe versus Wade. So, Jane, we're also seeing this movement in state legislatures. It's not just politicians talking about it. They're actually— taking votes on extremely restrictive new laws in many of these states. And of course, Florida was the big state that acted this week. That's significant in presidential politics because you have Ron DeSantis, the governor, who's going to end up running on it. But it's also significant for the women of Florida and the women of the South. Florida was a relative oasis of uh, liberalization in the context of the South. And so it actually saw a pretty significant increase in the number of abortions in the year since Dobbs. So Jane, what does it mean that the the Florida state legislature voted on this very restrictive six weeks uh, abortion ban? What does that mean?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's an indication of what we're seeing in, you know, all over the country in red states, which is that the, the state legislatures, many of which have super majorities of Republicans, um, thanks to gerrymandering, are implementing laws that are far, far more extreme than the voters in the states – They've got the power and they're running with it and unchecked, really. There, there was a quote in the New York Times this week that said that there are no brakes on them anymore. And and I think that's what we're seeing. And I think there was one particular essay I thought was terrific that came out recently in the New York Times by Tom Edsel. And it quotes the political scientist Theda Skolchpol who talks about how there's basically a two-step going on. It's between the state legislatures... Um, and the Supreme Court. The court has enabled the state legislatures to be wildly, unfairly gerrymandered along partisan lines so that they're really out of kilter with the population, far more to the right than the voters are. And they are passing legislation that then is being upheld by the Supreme Court. So you have this kind of two-step, it's a lock, as she put it, um, back and forth between the two. And critics are suggesting it's really an anti-democratic situation, even almost an authoritarian situation, because it's beyond the recall of voters and and the majority opinion in the country.
0: And believe it or not, one of the Republicans who has actually, one of the few Republicans who has come out and said clearly what a political liability this is, is none of than Donald Trump, who actually said in a social media post early this year, he said, you know, this is the reason – now, of course, he's exculpating himself from the reason why Republicans did poorly in the midterms. But he also said it it is that the abortion issue, as he wrote, has been poorly handled by Republicans uh, because he says it's out of step with where the country is. So,
1: Of course, these are his judges. Of course. The ones that he packed the the court with in order to get elected. And that's the other side of the equation, which is Why is this happening also? Because there's sort of a coalition of two groups that have made up the Republican Party for years. And one is sort of corporate money and the other is the social conservatives. And this is what – you, you need both parts in order for Republicans to win. And they, 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 this is what the social conservatives want.
2: Well, let's talk about the, the Republican politics of it, Evan, because Donald Trump, uh, nothing has ever stopped him from both blasting something and <laughs> taking credit for <laughs> nice. it. I'm sure that uh, uh, situational uh, politics is, is going to dictate both strategies for him at the same time. You, you referenced Tim Scott squirming, but you now have Ron DeSantis running uh, you know, in this very hard right lane. Democrats think it's going to be a weakness uh, against him what do you make of the emerging kind of Republican politics of this?
0: Well, as Jane put it, I think this is so so important that right now, Ron DeSantis is running not in an election. He's running in a primary, right? He's not even running technically. But here at the point, what he is trying to do is appeal to these voters who are the most energized, the most impassioned. And let's be clear, also, he's running for the support of major donors. And when you look at who some of the funders are that have been behind this strategy of Uh, challenging the quote-unquote administrative state trying to undermine regulation. It's many of the same organizations and individuals that have also been behind trying to uh, push this more extreme position on abortion. I mean, take, for example, Leonard Leo, the executive vice president of the Federalist Society. Federalist Society has donors like the Koch Industries, which has been fighting against climate change action. You've got the Sarah Scaife Foundation, which is uh, created by heirs of the Mellon oil fortune. So there is this this way in which this it's not just at the Supreme Court, which is what we often talk about when you see this emergence of a conservative bloc. It's really there has been the assemblage of a full apparatus, a kind of full stack of conservative legal authority uh, that runs, and you see it beginning in Texas, then it goes to the appellate court, and ultimately it gets to the Supreme Court. That's been one of the strategies about how do you deal with the fact that you're promoting policies that are unpopular with voters? Well, you try to keep it as much as possible in the courts.
2: But Jane, it's interesting, right, because those are sort of the the big corporate or libertarian-minded donors like the Kochs. It's the evangelical movement, the white evangelical movement in America that spent 40 years organizing itself and dedicating itself to this goal of overturning Roe versus Wade. What's their new goal and what should we look for uh, given that they're such a key really the core of the Republican electorate. Uh, I believe it was something like more than 70% of white Christian evangelicals uh, who voted for Donald Trump twice. And it seems like that abortion decision was one of the main things that they were looking for. So what are they looking for now?
1: Well, you're right that they were the single most sort of faithful block behind Donald Trump, amazingly, given his character flaws. Um, And they did get what they wanted. in overturning Roe versus Wade, but I I actually spoke to one of the leaders of the anti-abortion movement just um, this week, um, a a young woman named Lila Rose, who runs a group called Live Action, and um, they are nowhere near satisfied. I mean, this is the thing you have to understand. Overturning Roe was just step number one. Somebody like Lila Rose, who is a very devout Catholic believes in fetal personhood, which is what much of the anti-abortion movement believes in, um, they want to see laws that ban abortion across the board from the first Minute of conception, basically. That um, they they absolutely want to see national legislation. She said, "I don't want to see half measures. She doesn't want to see the kinds of proposals that Lindsey Graham has put forward, which is sort of a, I think a ban of it about fifteen or sixteen weeks, something like that. After that, um, after that long gestation period, she wants to see a complete ban. She regards it as murder, and um, there's no sort of." Um, Half measure, acceptable.
2: Well, let's talk about the politics of that, though. Uh, First of all, how possible is that? Uh, It took them many decades uh, to organize to get the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Evan, what are Democrats doing to stop this? They seem to think of abortion at the moment as a a kind of a winning political issue. But I'm not really clear what their agenda is at the national level for restoring reproductive rights. Are they simply going to concede the idea that it's going to be in blue states that women have access? to this and in red states where they don't.
0: Well, you saw right after the Dobbs decision that Joe Biden in particular came out and said, in effect, that this is now uh, one of the major issues that is at the heart of the Democratic Party's priorities. Now, the Blunt fact is that he personally is on slightly shaky ground with this because historically he is a devout Catholic. He is, if you go back to his early years in the Senate, he would say that he was personally opposed to abortion, uh, opposed federal funding for it for a long time. But is also, in the end, somebody who does see himself as very much representing the Democratic Party's uh, broad-based. Uh, opposition to efforts to impair reproductive rights so what you've seen is that in the 2022 midterm elections there was a clear recognition that talking about protecting abortion rights was essential to the Democratic party's success that made that front and center and it's part of, and in fact they did it against a lot of the sort of conventional wisdom they should be talking about economics and there were results for it they were actually much more successful in that election than than predictions had had been. But I think in the current moment now, it's become more difficult because you've got parts of the Democratic Party who are calling for the FDA to ignore that ruling. That's something that AOC and others have been calling for.
2: It is the justices themselves through the deeply partisan and unfounded nature of these rulings that are undermining their own enforcement.
0: In California, you see somebody like California Governor Gavin Newsom, who is saying that they're going to create an emergency stockpile of abortion pills. Um, In Washington state, you also see the governor taking action. But this is not yet an issue that you see the Biden administration sort of staking its identity to, um, because I think what they see is that the politics, in effect, are gaining momentum on their own, and uh, they don't want to uh, awaken a sleeping giant on the right if they turn this into an issue that is about Joe Biden.
1: I think it's a mistake in a view of many um progressive groups anyway, that the Biden administration seems to be kind of taking a back seat in this and 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 not leading on it because I think what I, my sense is that the politics have flipped and and that what was a good issue for the Republican party for a long time, um just pushing back against roe has now become a very powerful, motivating issue for the Democratic party for young voters for women voters for progressive voters um and that there's a sense I f- that the biden administration is uneasy with this topic it kind of it it, it it bothers them They're, he's just not comfortable being out on on the hustings on this particular issue and it's it's um it's frustrating for a lot of women who want to see him lead on it
0: yeah, I think it's it's not inaccurate to say that it's not his natural political home, and it's part of the reason why you see this slightly inhibited response. Uh, and I think there's going to be Democrats who are calling for much more vigorous action on his part.
2: Well, what about the young voter factor? I mean, it seems like reproductive rights is an example among many of them, climate change, gun control, LGBTQ rights, where around the country – Republicans seem more and more out of step with the positions of a new generation. And I'm, I'm curious, especially as we're heading into 2024, presidential election year, I, do you think that that could actually make a difference at, at the national level? So far, we've seen evidence of the potency of this abortion rights issue, but largely they've been in state elections where abortion was either explicitly on the ballot or the consequences uh, of the position like this state Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin, were very clearly tied to reproductive rights. So, you know, I, I'm still not sold on whether this is going to be an actual national voting issue or not, or whether it's going to be more targeted. What do you guys think?
1: I mean, I think everywhere where it has been a state issue, it has been a tremendous gain for the Democrats. So the party obviously is going to take a look at how it can have a referendum in every state that will allow it um, or somehow put it on the, you know, out in front of voters in 2024. I mean, the problem for Democrats is that even if they come out in droves on this issue, the Republican Party has really mastered sort of the machinery of holding counter-majoritarian power. And so how it will really Turnout in 2024 kind of depends on whether the will of the voters is heard.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're all resisting the temptation to use the dreaded cliche, it all depends on turnout. But the truth <laughs> is, is that that's, we find ourselves in this moment where the Republican Party is sort of actively sprinting away from the issues that young voters care most about, whether it's guns, climate change, reproductive rights, just on issue after issue, they are marching in the opposite direction. And you only hear the rarest of voices among Republicans who sort of acknowledge that There's Representative Nancy Mace of South Carolina who said – I'm reading here. She says, we have over the last nine months not shown compassion towards women. This is one of those issues that I've tried to lean on as someone who's pro-life and just have some common sense. Common sense is not a term that you hear a whole ton about at the highest levels of the Republican Party. And I think that is going to – in a sense, it's it's up to young voters to say, OK, we care enough to come out and vote against it.
2: Well, Jane, you mentioned counter-majoritarian. I think the one obvious consequence that you're seeing here in Washington, right, is people uh, saying this is it finally when we've got to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate, talk about an undemocratic situation where a minority of the Senate essentially can hold that body hostage. uh, They've been reluctant to make this change because both parties have seen it in their interest. You know, control of the Senate has gone back and forth in a way that uh, has meant they both have had a vested interest in keeping this filibuster going. Is it possible that abortion is finally the thing that breaks the filibuster?
1: I I think you're not going to see the filibuster removed um, until you have one party control of the trifecta of the White House and both houses of Congress, um, both the Senate and the House of Representatives. It's going to take that. And I think you're right that one of the first issues that would then be addressed would be some kind of national policy on abortion, depending on which party is in control. I think that is hanging up in the future over us. Um, All it takes to get rid of the filibuster is um, a simple majority. So, that's, but but I think we're not going to see it until we see um, one-party rule of the White House and both houses.
2: So basically the stakes for 2024 just got higher again. <laughs> if that
0: was even possible, but it's entirely true.
2: This has been The Political Scene. I'm Susan Glasser, and we had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia and Dan Richards. Steven Valentino is our executive producer and our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.